0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Romans chapter 2 in your Bibles, please. Romans chapter 2. We're going to be verses, uh, we're going to look at 17 through 29 uh, in its entirety. Uh, Romans 2, 17 through, through 29. Uh, If you'll stand with me to read, uh, we'll read 25 to 29 together. So let's stand together in honor of God's Word. Romans 2, I'm going to read verses 25 through 29. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. You You may be seated. So um, if you were with us last week, uh, you understand that I completely goofed the sermon planning and did today's Sunday school lesson. The sermon goes with today. I did last Sunday and the one that goes with last Sunday's Sunday school lesson I'm doing today because I can't read a spreadsheet um, or manage one. But that's okay. So that's why we're in Romans 2. We're talking about unity specifically around doctrine in the church, um, and we're going to do that coming out of Romans 2 today, uh, verses 17 through 29. I'm going to see how many times I can say the word circumcision and not laugh. Uh, that's, that's the goal. Okay, that's how many times we're going to do it today. Um, I saw... I I. I I, GIF is like my third language now. I could talk with GIFs or uh, memes or, you know, I just love, I just love the, how much you can say in one, in one picture. I've, I've used GIFs before. I'm going to use a meme today. I saw a meme not too long ago online. It was, a, it was a guy in his 50s, a very rugged figure, kind of a cowboy type. You know, had the hat and the blue jean jacket and the beard. And I mean, just, you know, all, just every bit of like a man, and, um, and he was looking straight at the camera and he had this little smile on his face and, uh, and it said y'all enjoy your 20s your 30s and your 40s because in your 50s your check engine light is going to come on And which I am told is true, Uh, being 46, I'm pretty close to seeing my check engine light come on. Um, But it's like all the different kinds of ways in your body where that happens, right? Um, Maybe it's your, your knees or your back or something like that. I have been going to the eye doctor since I was 12. So my check engine light came on in seventh grade with regard to my eyes when I realized I was five rows back from the chalkboard, which is what we used back then real chalk. Um, and I couldn't really see what was going on in Mamie Myers' math class. And I would say, Miss Myers, I can't see. And she'd say, you're lying. Go to detention. You know, like she would write me to detention because she didn't think, she was a very harsh lady. Um, so, <laughs> I'm really good at going to the eye doctor now, and I'm also very diligent about going to the eye doctor now, because if I take off my glasses, I just see this, you know, I see men who look like trees, if you will. It's just one big blur. I can't see anything. Now I can see everything, and it's, and it's wonderful. And so if you've, you've been to the eye doctor, right, so you know you put your chin in the thing, and, and, and your eye doctor, in my case, she, uh, Dr. Cranford, you know, she turns all these knobs and dials and with and with every bit of turning, she gets to this place at the end where it 's pretty clear for me, and she goes, "No cow, okay, I want you to, I want you to tell me which one of these is better and she goes one," and then she turns the dial and, and she goes or two one or two and if i 'm paying attention." And really thinking about my sight, I'll answer her right away. But if I'm not paying attention, I'll say, well, can you, can you do it again? I'm sorry, that was, I was not paying attention. Um, and she'll, she'll do it. It's okay, one or two, one or two. And she's just helping me get clarity, right? Every year, she's helping me make sure right, that I have clarity. The text that we're reading today is, is right in the middle of Paul trying to give the church in Rome gospel clarity, and so we're right in the middle of their theological eye exam, if you will. And so we're, he's just turning knob after knob after knob after knob, and he's helping them get to the place where they have gospel clarity. So, if, if, and so because it's in the middle, uh, right, I, I need to back up just a little bit and give you a little bit of context. So if you were to go to Romans 1, 18, Paul begins the theological exam by pointing out that all of humanity has, by reason of God's revelation and creation, they have some access, some access to, the deg- to a degree of knowledge about God. That there's enough out there to declare the glory of God and declare the existence of God. And yet, in looking at all of that, humanity has rejected God in favor of something else. And he goes on to list idols, lies. Self-indulgence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the end of Romans one, and then in Romans chapter two, Paul turns a knob or two, and he's tr- bringing even more clarity to his to what he's trying to say in Romans two one through sixteen. Because in making that first argument at the end of chapter one, Paul would then come to the part of chapter two, and he and, and somebody and he, he's he's responding to this rhetorical thing like so. If you're a Jew and you're listening to this think about Romans 1, 18 through 32, and how everybody's self-indulgent and gives themselves to over to their, these terribly immoral things, a Jew would say, well, Paul, I mean, I'm not that self-indulgent. I'm a way better person than the one you describe in Romans 1, 18 through 32. So this is a person who would read Romans 1, 18 32 and say, well, I get it, but I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm much more moral than that. Um, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm quite virtuous in general. Like, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm, but I'm good enough in my behavior. I'm, I'm a person of virtue. And in Romans 2, 1 through 16, Paul ends that passage by saying that, that that's not good enough. Uh, do you remember in high school or maybe college where you were took a test as a class and nobody did well? And so the teacher graded the class on the curve. So the best grade was 85. And so everybody got 15 extra points no matter what your grade was. That's not the way God grades us on a moral basis. God doesn't grade on the the curve. Um, He judges us all according to His actual law. This is the argument of Romans 2, 1 through 16, and everybody breaks the law. None of us is virtuous enough. None of us is moral enough. And then in Romans 2, 17 through 29, which we're going to look at today, Paul turns some more knobs and he's helping a Jewish person, he's helping a religious person, he's helping you and I get more clarity about what it means to be right with God. He's saying, he's going to answer the argument. Well, surely, okay, I get it, that you know, we don't want to be self-indulgent in worshiping idols, but I don't do that. And then you would say, well, at least I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, I, I, I do good things, I, I generally keep the law but I don't keep it perfectly. Okay, well, if that's not acceptable, God, I I get it, Paul. I can't just be whatever I want. And I get it, Paul, that I'm not good enough morally. But if I'm religious, God will accept me. If I'm religious, if I will be really devout and express my morality through a religious system in which I love the law and in which I practice certain rites and rituals, then God will accept me. So this morning, what we're going to, to look at is our religion. If you're at church today, you probably like religion. I grew up in religion. It was the center of my, my social world. The church was. It's literally in downtown Cleveland. It was right in the heart of town. Uh, everything about my life revolved around it. We love religion. We love religion. So if you love your Bible and you're a baptized believer, this is a text for you. If you've been going to church any decent amount of time or it's just part of the habit or you or maybe post-COVID it's like a new habit, this is for you. If you would classify yourself in any way as a devout Christian, this is for you or even just devout religious, this is for you. If If Christianity is all new to you and you only know about it, what you have read in the news or seen in culture, this is for you because you're going to see that we do kind of do religious and churchy things. But it's not about the religious and churchy things. Here's the, here's the, if you tune out the rest of the sermon, here's the point of the sermon, okay? It is entirely possible to live churched but not saved. It is entirely possible to live around all the things that provide the opportunity for genuine faith and never have faith. It is also possible by the work of the Spirit to be right with God because of Jesus. All those things is what Paul is making today in Romans two, seventeen through twenty-four. So look at Romans two, seventeen through twenty-four. This is what Paul is doing. Paul, by the way, is like the the worst, like, he's like the worst person in the world to debate against. He's just piercing in the way that he writes and what he, he says. So, because in verses 17 through 20, Paul builds up the Jews that he's addressing in this letter. And he mentions eight things that are very true and very good about being Jewish. It was great, Jewish, being Jewish had all kinds of advantages and all kinds of privileges, in verse 17 to 18, you can see these. The advantages. God's given them the law. Absolutely true. From the first hand of Moses on Mount Sinai, all the succession of writings of the generals, the kings, the chronicles, and the prophets, it was gr- the Jews had the law of God. The Jews had entered into a special relationship with God. God began with Abraham, and from Abraham onward, all the Jews enjoyed the advantages of a covenant relationship with God. Verse 18, because Jews had been given the law, they knew what God's will was. They possessed an actual written revelation from God in the Old Testament. And they had the proper foundation for knowing God's will. And therefore, also verse 17 and 18... The Jews could approve only the most excellent of human moral standards. So a Jew having the law of God could evaluate any other standard because he possessed an absolute rule or a plumb line or a yardstick by which to measure morality. All in the Ten Commandments. It's good to be a Jew. Great advantage. And because they had all those advantages, they could be what verses 19 through 20 say they could be. They could be a guide for the blind. They could be a light to those who are in the dark. They could be an instructor for someone who is foolish. They could be teachers of infants in the word. There's a great privilege to have that, to have that responsibility. is a great privilege to bring that to the world. So they had the law of God and they had the privileges that come with the law of God. And so you can hear Paul saying this to a Jew and they're going, yes, that's right, yes. Over and over again, affirming, affirming. And then (laughs) in verses 21 through 24, Paul turns some knobs and he's bringing some clarity to them. And this is what he's going to show them in verses 21 through 24 that the spiritual advantages and the privileges that the Jews possess could not make them right before God. They could have all of the privileges and all of the advantages of being with God and not be right with God. Why? Number one, hypocrisy. Look at verse 21 and 22. Paul says, You then who teach another... Don't you teach? You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You see what Paul is saying? His point is not that the Jews were fighting against sin, pushing against temptation, striving to do what the law says, but sometimes failing. That's not Paul's point here. That's not hypocrisy. That's biblical. That's, That's normal. That's the pursuit of holiness empowered by the Spirit, which is at the end of the sermon. But what Paul here is addressing is the gap between public persona and private character. So in, in public, the Jews would say, you shall not steal. And Paul says, but there's a gap between your public persona and your private character, which tells me that you are stealing. It is the, it's giving the outward appearance of righteousness to others while actually being self-indulgent and being okay with your hypocrisy. That's what was going on. So the Jews, Paul's saying, is, they were using the appearance, the appearance of righteousness to the world to cloak the deeds of evil that were really going on in their lives. The Jews were consumed with what others thought them to be rather than God, who God knew them to be. And so that's the reason. That's the reason Paul brings this up is because possession of the law, knowing what God uh, demands, is inadequate to save you because you can't keep it. You can't. Verse 23 and 24, not just hypocrisy, but ineffective. It's ineffective. Look at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right, that's a quote from Isaiah 52, 5. In Ezekiel 36, and in both of these texts, God's name had been mocked because his people had been defeated and enslaved. And in the same way that the military defeat the Jews back then led to the dishonor of God's name among the Gentiles, so does the moral defeat of the Jews lead to the dishonors of God's name in the Gentiles. You see what, Paul, you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, remember back then, when the military defeated the Jews and the loss of land and loss of the promised land led to the dishonor of the Jews, that's what's happening now, morally speaking, spiritually speaking. Your hypocrisy, the ineffectiveness of the law to change your hearts, is leading to the shame of God among the Gentiles. And because... so, So here's what Paul is saying about the law. He's saying, yes, you possess it, and, you, and this is what you're doing. You're using it to give the world the appearance of holiness when in fact you're not. And this renders you ineffective as a light in the world. Who wants to be around a hypocritical person? Who's going to join the faith? Hypocrisy doesn't allow us, right, that light. And so because that is true, Paul says, you cannot bank on you possessing the law of God to make you right with God. So what? So let's apply this text to ourselves just for a moment. To the Jew in this text, it's the law. To the Christian today, it's the Bible. It's the Bible. Do you love the Bible? I love the Bible. (laughs) I'm trying trying, trying to explain it to you. I I deliberately chose circumcision 50 times in a text. That's how much I love the Bible, right? That's where God has spoken. You should absolutely love the Bible. I know you do. Christians value biblical authority. The Bible informs everything that we do. It is God's revelation of himself to man. It is the perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is God's for its author. It's totally true and trustworthy. We believe it is the supreme, supreme standard for all human conduct. But what we don't believe is that having it and knowing a lot about it makes us right with God. We don't believe that. We love the Bible. Because all of it testifies to Jesus who makes us right with God. I am not right with God because I believe and love the Bible. I am right with God because the message of the Bible reveals Jesus to me who lived the life I could not live and paid the price I could not pay and made me right with God by grace through faith. See the difference? So you got to heed Paul's warning here, especially those of us that are trusted to teach the Bible and those of us who are constant consumers of podcasts about the Bible. We need to accept and love the Bible as the authoritative word. We need to boast in God, know His will, approve what is excellence, guide the blind. Yes, 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 but we need something more than just the presence or the existence of the Bible in order to be right with God. didn't work for the Jews. It will not work for us. So what do we need? Well, if you were a Jewish person, you'd say, oh, okay, fine. You're right, Paul, fine. It's not not just possession of the law. If it's not just possession of the law, then certainly, Paul, certainly the outward mark of everybody's favorite word, circumcision, would put us in right standing with God certainly the mark of circumcision would put us in right standing with God. And Paul says, no, 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 no. no, Let me show you. And he turns some more knobs and he's trying to bring clarity. Look at verses 25 through 28. Paul says, circumcision benefits you if you observe the law. But if you're a lawbreaker, which is the point I've just made, your circumcision has become uncircumcision." So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something that's visible in the flesh. So you can go back. If you really want to dive deep into this, go back into Genesis 17 and you can read about how circumcision came to be such a crucial part of Judaism through Abraham. But if you don't want to read Genesis 17 this afternoon, let me explain. Okay, If you go back to Genesis 17, 9 through 14, circumcision was regarded by the Jews as having the highest level of importance. I mean, it's, it's the thing. It's it's the highest level. It was unthinkable that a man duly circumcised and admitted to the covenant and therefore his family with him would not be right with God. It was the mark that you were right with God to the community that you were in and to the world outside that you were in this covenant community with God. And so Paul takes this central Ceremony, this central rite, this R-I-T-E, this central ritual. And he points out that that mark is completely ineffective if the spiritual state to which it points is not a reality. Circumcision did have values, says Paul, but only if a person continued to actually do what the law required. Otherwise, circumcision was no better than uncircumcision. You say, well, how could he say that biblically? Because Genesis 17, when God entered into a relationship with Abraham in Genesis 17, as a sign of that relationship, he said, Abraham, I want you to be circumcised. Now, in those days, this this is the important part to understand. In the days of Abraham, you didn't sign a contract to bind a contract, right? You, you, there weren't paper and pen, you know, just all the things that come with, you know, legalities and contracts. In other words, um, you, you would instead you would act out the consequences of that contract. You would physically act them out. So if a person would enter into a covenant with someone else, he might pick up some sand on the ground, and he would drop it on his head and say, if I don't do... Everything that I say that I'm going to do today, if I disobey this covenant that I've just made with you, may I be as this dust in my hand. And he would drop this dust in his hair or whatever. It would be a physical demonstration. Or, to use a more biblical example, a person would cut an animal in half and walk between the pieces and say, if I don't do absolutely everything I have said today in this contract, may I be cut into pieces myself. Sound familiar? So back in Genesis 17, what God was saying to Abraham in this text was, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, Abraham, you need to be circumcised." That means, Abraham, that you're admitting that if you disobey the covenant, you'll be cut off from me. But here's the question. Did you read the story of Abraham? Did Abraham obey the covenant? Did he keep the law? Did Isaac keep the covenant? Did Jacob keep the covenant? Has anybody in the Old Testament ever kept the covenant? Has anybody ever walked before God blamelessly? Paul says no. The story of the Old Testament is God's covenantal people breaking the covenant. Circumcision was a sign or a symbol of what was to be, but it didn't create The otherness that it represented any more than the law created the holiness that it taught. So Paul is saying is the the right, the ritual doesn't make you right with God. It didn't actually do what it represented. Paul lives in realville, not in religiousville. The practice of the rite, the practice of the ritual, the banking on the mark doesn't speak to the actual condition of the heart. And so you can't count on it. So let's apply this to ourselves. So to the Jew, this is circumcision. To us, it is the outward marks that we perform in our faith to communicate something about our faith to the outside world. What are those things that we do? Baptism and communion. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So a person's baptism is an act of obedience and it symbolizes the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, the resurrection to walk in the newness of life. It is a testimony to his faith and the final resurrection of the dead. It is beautiful. It does not save. We don't tr- How do you know you're saved? Because I got baptized. Terrible answer. Terrible answer. We don't trust in our baptism to make us right before God any more than Paul says we should trust in our circumcision to make us right before God. It's really hard not to notice the intentionality. Now, think about Lord's Supper. To regularly take the Lord's Supper is to take a symbolic act of obedience, to remember the death of Jesus, anticipate His second coming. It's an incredible picture. It's a beautiful worship experience, which we're going to do here shortly, but it doesn't save you. We don't take this thinking that it makes you right with God. It doesn't. So we need to hear Paul's warning here. It's entirely possible to confuse the signs of our faith and the opportunities for faith to be the things that we place our faith in we need something else other than rites and rituals and ceremonies to make us right with god what do we need romans 2:29 religion is insufficient religion is inadequate we need something more than the presence or the existence of the Bible to be right with God. We need something other than rites or rituals or ceremonies to make us right with God. That moment in your eye exam where it's like, boom, 2020, 2010, vision, clarity. This is the moment for Paul. This is absolute gospel clarity. Look at verse 29. Paul says... A person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So circumcision of the heart is, of course, no new requirement. If you know your Old Testament, you know this is true. Moses and Jeremiah, for example, called on the people of Israel to circumcise their hearts and not be stiff-necked people. God's true people have always been marked by a faith-filled commitment to God and not an external rite or ritual. But Paul here explains that this heart circumcision, he explains how it happens and it happens by the Spirit. And if you go on through Romans, Paul will go on to show that that only those who through faith in Christ have received the Spirit of God, those are the ones who make up God's true people. So if you have the law without the Spirit, then you get external religious rituals and you get the need for those people to admire you, to keep you going, and eventually death. But, Paul says... If you have the law with the Spirit, you get a circumcision of the heart and you get God's praise no matter who approves of you and you get abundant life. See the difference? Paul wants us to have gospel clarity. He wants us to understand that it's entirely possible to live church but not saved, to live around all the things that point to faith and yet not have faith. But he wants you to know that by circumcision of the heart, by the Holy Spirit, you can have faith right standing and right relationship with God. Now, there are lots of ways that this applies. I've tried to bring out a couple, and I want to bring out just, just one more because I think on a regular basis this, can be, this is. It's not that it can be. It is. It is absolutely transformative. It's a great Bible study that I did years and years ago, and I just I keep it accessible because it is so good. It's a gentleman by by name Tim Keller. The Bible says it's called Gospel and Life. And he just has this paragraph where he, he says the difference between living a religious life and a gospel life looks like this. He says, Religion says, I obey God, therefore I'm accepted by God. But the gospel says, I'm accepted by God in Christ, therefore I obey. See the difference? Religion says, I'm motivated. By fear and insecurity, but the gospel motivation is based on gratefulness and joy of who Christ is and what he's done. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey to get God and delight in him and resemble him. Religion says that when the circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God, I'm angry at myself, I believe that anyone who is good really deserves a better life than I'm getting right now. But the gospel says that when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm going to struggle, but I know that all my punishment fell on Christ and that while God may allow this for my training, He is exercising love and discipline in my life. Religion says that when I'm criticized, I get furious and I'm devastated because it's critical that I think of myself as a performing good person. These are threats to my self-image that I have to destroy. But the gospel says that when I'm criticized, I don't like it, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my performance. It's built on Jesus' love for me in his performance. You see how liberating this just go on and on and on and on. You will... Throw away the hope that being good, being good enough, doing all the church things would make you right before God. Just throw that junk away and just embrace the son he sent to do all that on your behalf and pay the penalty on your behalf. And it will liberate you of all the junk that can come with religiosity. Father, that's our prayer. Even today, in response, we sing, we pray, we take communion together. We're not going to do this so that you'll approve of us. We do this to remember that you have approved of us in your son. Based on his life, his death, his overcoming death and the resurrection, his ascension, his reign, he is God good enough for us. And so we trust in His righteousness and on our own and we take this communion today we do so the Christians in this room do so proclaiming and boasting in Him not our efforts, not our possessions not our rights, not our rituals our hope is not in the practice of this thing, it is in the one it represents what He did on our behalf. Help us to live in that truth daily, hourly, claiming it and believing it and walking in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.